editing that first episode was quite a challenge when um, it's just constantly listening to your own stupid voice say the, the same things over and over again and also editing out every time I start a question like so so David how long did it take to edit out my whistly nose do you know it wasn't your nose that was whistling the most it was it was my own um, it was <laughs> if only it was that melodic and beautiful tuneful tuneful Hello and welcome to Still Doing the Music, aye? A new podcast that will hopefully give you, the listener, an insight into parts unfamiliar. There are plenty of podcasts that talk about the music and the process and we will chat about that. But we're also going to talk around the music and shine a light in the bits that don't get discussed so often. We're not going to bore you about spreadsheets and heavy lifting. Although there is a lot of that. We're going to talk to objectively successful artists and find out how they cope with a constantly changing industry. How they cope with having to be an accountant. An influencer. And a manager amongst many other things on top of making music in one way or another. How they cope with the constant devaluation of recorded work and the harsh realities of touring. And how they juggle their other jobs and roles to literally survive as an artist today. I'm Charlotte. I'm a session musician, lucky enough to play for various artists around Scotland, such as Joseph... Skippinish, and of course, Broken Chanter. I have red hair that looks like Mick Hucknall mated with red from Fraggle Rock. I met David when he asked me to play bass for Broken Chanter. David's opening statement to me was that he isn't grumpy or angry. He just has constant resting bitch face. I can assure you, he smiled the whole way through these episodes. Ish. Luckily, as this is an audio medium, I won't need to provide you all with the same assurances. I'm David McGregor, and I've been making music as a member of the now deceased Kid Canaveral and as Broken Chanter for longer than I'm willing to admit. As Charlotte gave you such a vivid visual description of herself, if you bring to mind Brian McFadden and his beard era after a fight with a chip pan, you're most of the way there. Our first guest was born in Belfast, was raised in Chicago, and has been in Glasgow for long enough to be as Scottish as an inability to take a compliment. She has a wealth of experience on a stage, a seasoned musician with critically acclaimed forays into dance and theatre. She's a teacher, a community worker and as a musician, her unmistakable songwriting and playing talent is all over the output of Sparrow in the Workshop, Body Parts, Three Queens in Morning and most recently, sort of, solo guys, Jalorian, not to mention her incredible CV of session work. We're delighted to welcome multi-instrumentalist, owner of four vocal octaves, all-round good sort and podcast guinea pig, Jill O'Sullivan. So Jill, still, still doing, doing the music, music eh? Yes, unbelievably so. I'm clinging on to the edge of the castle like Nosferatu. Uh, I actually put out an album on April 1st called This Rock, and we did an album launch um, on May 28th, so just a few days ago, last week I think, at the Hug and Pint in Glasgow, so it was really nice. It's really cathartic actually I feel as though I never had a chance to do any kind of promotion or gigs around not your first which was the EP we put out at the beginning of lockdown because it just it just happened that it, the ball was already rolling on that and then everything shut down as we all remember <laughs> so vividly and uh so I I never got to do any gigs really anything um and even just me being me and 
whatever. I, I didn't even really want to trouble too many people by saying, hey, this EP, do you want to listen to it? Um, it's called Not Your First. I'm really excited about it. Um, I hope this finds you well under these trying, uncertain times. You know, it felt really odd. What's the thing everybody was saying? I know these are unprecedented dented times but do you think you could meet me at 10 a.m next week so I was really conscious of that and I think as a result I didn't want to you know really bother people too much so we just sort of put that one out gently and anybody who had expressed an interest already I engaged with um otherwise I stayed quiet so it was nice for this one to be able to actually say hey yeah, album, this rock, very proud of this, um, recorded with Andy Monaghan and Peter Kelly on drums, and um, Andy also did loads of other things, production, mixing, <laughs> uh, bass, keyboard, accordion, like everything, um, and uh, yeah, so it was just really good to be able to do that and not feel a guilt, which is odd, that's just my own personal problem. <laughs> I have got a, a, a lovely t-shirt of your, is it your grand? It's uh, my granny. Playing an accordion on, on the front of it. Yes, Nanny Rita. She uh, she was a wild woman who played um, in a kind of all-girls traveling band in the 1940s, I That's believe. That's cool. Yeah. And they went to... Uh, they went all over Ireland. So she was from Dublin. They went all over Ireland. They went all over... England, as far as I'm aware, I don't I don't know if they made it as far up as Scotland. Even though her father was from Edinburgh, he's from Leith or somewhere, I think. He was a barrel maker, so moved to Dublin to work at the Guinness factory. Well, apparently. <laughs> so yeah, I, it, that's her playing the squeeze box on the T-shirt. Thank you for thank you for getting one. No, it's one of my favourite T-shirts. Oh, that's kind of you to say. So um, now that your 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 amazing album. Is, is out in, in, the, in the world um, and you know I'm not I'm not crawling here it is genuinely uh, a wonderful record um, I think that maybe uh, maybe people who are listening to this don't fully understand the expectations on um, artists around releasing a record now uh, from the kind of intrusive social media presence or the fact that you've um, you know your emails are in your hand uh, or next to your head 24 hours a day so how do you how do you keep a healthy separation between you, Jill O'Sullivan, and you as Jillorian in an age where, you know, constant and near total access is expected? Well, one thing I realise I do is I have, say for Instagram, two different. I have my own personal Instagram for family and friends, and then I have Jillorian. But also, I don't I don't really update that frequently. Um, any of the sites, I just go on when there's an, a reason to and. I'm kind. Of, I'm not a shy person to meet, as you may know, but I am actually quite shy in certain ways, and I feel I get very awkward about. You know, some people can take selfies or do videos of themselves talking, or like be very centered around um, what's going on in their lives, and I always have this sense that nobody cares about what's going on in my life, so I really only engage when I'm like, okay, I've really got something to tell you. I'm doing this amazing podcast started by David and Charlotte, for instance, or um, it's on BBC, Roddy Hart Show, for instance. Or, and these kinds of things, I think, well, that that's that maybe somebody might be interested in, but I just don't think anybody cares about me cooking an egg that strangely looked like a cat's face. 
I mean, I'm completely into that. I'm like, Actually, yeah. Once I said it, in, I knew I, it. I could see it in your face. You're like, everyone's into this. Yeah, I was like, what did I do? Oh God. Okay, guys. So I'll be leaving after this, and I'll be tweeting that out. Okay. That's some good. Uh, that's good content. <laughs> okay, cool. Now I know I once found a uh, potato chip that looked like Jesus, and I realized I also missed a trick with that one. Like the person that had the piece of toast that looked like Alanis Morissette on it. Really? <laughs> Is there anything better? No. Exactly. I don't think I could have eaten that. No, you could, no, you couldn't. <laughs> um, not because I hate her. Because I was going to say, isn't it ironic? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, God. And it isn't. <laughs> oh, no, it's another thing for the list that is not ironic. <laughs> yeah. This one time, um, my sort of Twitter claim to fame, I made a really uh, silly joke about um, Peaky Blinders, and in it, and it sort of went viral. So really, what I'd love to happen is that I'd say, oh, this rock out on April 1st, I'd love that to go viral, but unfortunately, like, a really catty comment, snide comment about guys wearing flat caps and drinking uh, uh, juice when they come out of Pure Gym went viral. <laughs> it's, it's a difficult balance to strike because I once found a, a cooker turned on its side uh, near my flat and it looked like it was uh, it had an ecky jaw and I posted a picture of it and it got uh, like thousands of likes and then I got a few followers off it and then when I started just tweeting about music again um, all of those followers left because they're like this is not about um, appliances that look like they're on drugs oh man that's such a shame did you feel a pressure to you know do any more tweets about appliances on drugs um, the, the opportunity didn't arrive, uh, really. Uh, although there was... Um, Were you uh, looking hard enough, though? Maybe not. There was a small ca- cathode ray tube television that was peeking out of a hedge, and I got a few hundred likes on that. Okay. Oh, okay. very nice, very nice. Not the same clout, though. Do you find yourself, as an artist... So I avoid social media because I find that I compare myself to other bassists and all this, and I find that way too overwhelming, and I stop posting, and I come off it. Do you get that? As, as an artist with anyone else or um, I don't really compare myself to other people um, I, I just have a lot of self hate <laughs> that's, that's what I have going on so it's, it's all very like inward yeah. um, I, I might go to post something and think oh god really nobody cares that's rubbish except now I realise oh, egg that looks like a cat is totally valid um, but apart from that, yeah, I think, I think mine's very in, in, inward. Like I don't actually even spend that much time on the social media. I spend less and less time on Twitter, for instance, which I feel like really just, just doesn't do good things for my mental health. Yeah. So I go on there and I literally just look for pals who've got things that I'm interested in like going to music, or maybe I can retweet them because I like them and I want them to um, want people to go and see them. You know, like you guys had a wonderful gig at Sneaky Pete's last night. You know, things like that. But yeah. I don't really want to go on and see someone saying, like a middle-aged, middle-class dad who, like, wants to tell everyone he's working class and that he's judging you if you like REM. I'm just like, I don't have time for that because I know you were shopping at Waitrose yesterday and you live in a big house, an up-down house, as I like to call them. So I don't have time for that. And there's a surprising (laughs) amount of them 
on Twitter, particularly in my Twitter feed. I don't know how it's happened, <laughs> but um, so I go on, I see that or picture of Boris Johnson, feel really depressed. So I try and avoid them. Right. So what is it you think that um, uh, middle-aged uh, white cis men who are class tourists have against REM? <laughs> I, you know, I can't figure it out. I've, I've, I've really given it a lot of thought. No, I haven't given it that much thought. But I've occasionally thought about it while scrolling past <laughs> and then just blocked them. So like, I don't really have, have the energy for this. Well, it's all part of life's rich pageant. I mean, can I ask, could you think of anything that they might have wrong with? <laughs> <laughs> life's rich pageant. Can we open this as, a, as island? <laughs> Please get in touch with us. Yeah, what do you think about <laughs> REM? I once saw, saw a tweet that really, like, I just thought this is peak Twitter, and it was a bunch of, again, middle-aged white cis men arguing about who was more working class based on whether or not they had orange squash or purple squash as children. And I was like, I'm done here. Mm. I'm out. I leave. Where are the aliens going to come and just destroy us? Yeah, I honestly just think we deserve the comet. Because uh, when I see people uh, reminiscing about how good it was to be cold and miserable, um, or fantasists who were born 10 years after the Second World War uh -huh. ended going, well, you know, it wasn't like this in the Blitz. Yep. And it just makes me want to drop kick my phone into the nearest body of war. Yeah, same, same. That, 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 that's always a funny one. Like, you young people don't understand it. And it's like, I'm sorry, are you that generation that bought your house for £20,000 and it's now worth... 750,000. You can just F off. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll get a comedy bleep button for that. Cool. Thanks. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're, we're all fine. We're all good. And I mean, the thing is, like, I'm still finding ripe avocados to eat. And that just. Thank God. It's all I need yeah. in life. My credit cards are maxed out from avocado toast. <laughs> so, uh. Yeah. So we're all musicians, as we know, we're all out there doing our things and there's a multitude of things that we need to juggle from home life to touring and everything. So we wanted to ask you how you manage juggling numerous roles, how easy you find it going from signing records one night and flipping back into home life immediately as soon as you drive home from that gig. Um, you know, I've gotten used to it, so I, I don't see it as difficult mainly because it's just, you know how you kind of adapt to the situations. In fact, the night of the album launch, um, my partner, Nick, who's never been able to see a full Bangalorean gig because our home life, you know, we have a small daughter, uh, texted me to say he couldn't come to the gig because our daughter had a temperature of nearly 40 degrees. Just out of nowhere, she just got really sick. So I'm about to go on stage with this knowledge in my head. Times like that, it can be quite sobering and um, and weird. Uh, and then you feel, again, guilt, which is probably something that's going to come up a lot in this because I have a lot of it. I don't know why. I mean, it's like, I don't know, some kind of latent Catholic thing, <laughs> my ancestors. Um, but, yeah, you think, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? But then I think, well, you could be at your day job or let's say if you have a, a another type of life, um, and that could happen. And you could be like in a meeting and go, I, can't, I can't go right now. And the school's calling saying your child is quite sick. You need to come pick them up. And so everybody has challenges. And I just think in some ways, the the, the hardest thing for me is I, I do so many different jobs. So like on Mondays, I'm working in a 
say a prison. On Tuesdays, I might be um, having a band rehearsal. On Wednesdays, I'm auditioning people for a theater show I'm involved in. On Thursdays, I'm working up in. Uh, Thursdays are actually my my glorious days where I do admin and other things, send off records, usually whatever. Fridays, I'm a castle milk working with young kids. That and then also doing all the other stuff and then the random incidentals that come in and out of that. That does get a little bit dizzying because each time you go into a new role, you do have to put on a new hat, I guess you know, and you go, well, yeah. what was I doing with? And also remembering the names of the people you're working with and trying to be positive, personable, kind, conscientious and do your job in a way that they get something out of. You know, community work, you don't, I don't want to just sit there. I want to make sure that the kids or the adults I'm working with, you know, get something out of it. So there's that too. So sometimes I do feel really, really tired. And as a result, I don't go out very often and I think some people find that funny, you know, I'm often like, oh, no, thanks. I'm not going to go out tonight. It's just because I'm, I'm tired and I don't have the energy to socialize or, you know, I just, I, I so I'm like a battery. I just empty by the end of the week. <laughs> by Saturday, I'm like dun, 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 dead still, <laughs> you know, which is worse post pandemic. Or I think for me, that battery <laughs> was that size and now it's tiny anyway for social interactions. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same. Uh, it's just, uh, it was nice to have a kind of a, a reason to be exhausted by t- social interactions because like, I think I do have quite a, a small social battery sometimes and say, like, oh, well, you know, COVID, better just stay in the house. Yeah. And now it's like constant interaction. Yeah, and I feel like I, I can't tell, I've been talking about this with a few people, and we can't tell if it's accelerated or if we just got used to slowing down and now that things are speeding back up. It, it's like, you know, when, when you run or try to train for, I've never tried to train for a marathon, I, but like from what I hear people saying who do that kind <laughs> of thing, uh, that, you know, you're like building it up and building it up. And I wonder if it's the same for us. You know, we, we all kind of got, not all of us, some people were out there working harder than ever during um, yeah. that period like you know shop workers nhs uh, ambulance drivers what's a what's a huge high that you've had like a, a joyous musical bubble that you've found yourself in only to have it immediately punctured by something <laughs> something less nice or something you know every day okay so one thing to my advantage i've discovered is i'm very good at burying bad memories so I actually had to ask my my partner Nick to remember for me because we were in a band together for years and he he remembers everything the good the bad the ugly and I only remember the good so he came up with a couple zingers and one of which I'll share because it's too ridiculous not to um we were kind of at the height of our buzz if you will, in this old band of mine, Spare in the Workshop. And believe it or not, there was a period where we were buzzing and we were getting like six lots of six music play and lots of, you know, music lawyers and uh, managers and et cetera, et cetera, calling and interested in coming to our gigs and working with us. The thing a lot of anyone who's here in music is going to listen to this and go, oh, yeah, 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 that whole scene. Um, and... We got the opportunity to go to New York to play a number of gigs. One was with the Brian Jonestown Massacre, who we had toured Europe with. And then there were two others, which were just going to be gigs where we played in front of, like, industry people. Um, 
if I'm being, if I'll just be honest, that's really probably what it was for. And so we were on a high, you know, we were like fly over, we're like, this is so exciting. We're playing New York and we get to the airport and we were expecting to get picked up in a car and taken to the hotel, which was booked by our label. So we were like, okay, you know, we retired, but so excited and young. So we didn't really care. We're just like, we get, we're waiting on the car. And what turns up is a limo, like the most New York experience (laughs) you can think of. And the limo arrives and we get in the limo and you know, what's playing that Beyonce song, New York, the concrete streets of names where dreams are made of that one. And we're just like, we've got the, uh, the roof open and we're all singing and someone had raided the little fridge there were beers and that kind of thing in the fridge so we're like drinking a beer and we're just like anyway we pull up to what seems actually quite a swanky building in Manhattan and I was like looking at it going surely we're not being put up here I mean this is like Rolling Stones not Sparrow in the Workshop you know we were still sleeping in vans and stuff so we come out and we go to reception on our massive high you know like thing in New York and uh, before we even get to reception the receptionist starts shaking his head and we come up and he goes uh oh dear oh dear we're like um we're here to we've got room booked for spare in the workshop and he's like oh, I've, heard, I've heard this one before you know uh you kids uh you've been scammed and we were like what and he's like, yeah, there's these scam artists and on a gum tree and, uh, or Craigslist. It was Craigslist where they booked it. And he's like, you know, they, uh, they tell you, you're going to go to 700, uh, West 21st street. You show up. No, honeys, this is a building for residents. This ain't no hotel. So we were just like, oh my God. And, um, yeah, we, we were, we were, our label was scammed out of, I don't even know how much they would have paid. So thankfully the A&R guy was with us and he managed to remember that there was a cheaper hotel about 12 blocks away. (laughs) So he ran and booked us two rooms in there. So we took all our gear (laughs) and walked 12 blocks to um, a much more um, uh, humble... (laughs) hotel so um that was an incredible high followed by an incredible low at least didn't drive off with your gear do you know exactly the limo was legit that was the one legit part the limo was actually somehow we'd booked a car or they'd booked us a car but they only had a limo so the limo was legit I thought this was going to go down the path of that you'd actually taken like Alicia Keys limo or something <laughs> like you at the airport. Oops. Oh, actually, I have a story. Can I tell this story really quick? Of course. We were playing the milk fag in, in Amsterdam. And um, I love to tell this story, actually. I haven't been able to for a while. And it was while we were on tour with Jonestown. And we arrived. We were driving in our van. We had this little splitter van that we had adapted to be able to sleep in it and stuff and take it on the road. And we arrived and we were all bursting for the toilet. So I was like, I need to go wee, I need to go wee. So I jumped out of the van the minute we got to the milk bag and I run up the stairs and this very, very lovely, like nice uh, Dutch guy is like, oh, you must be the band. He says, yeah, come this way. Your your rooms are all up there. He's like, you'll see all the, the rooms are on the left and the bathrooms are on the right. So I was like, cool. So I go into the bathroom. I do my thing. 
And then I come out and I go into the dressing room and I was just like, sweet. There was a, a spread of like every single <laughs> kind of pastry you could ever dream of, you know, like, I mean, it, it was like uh, all the bakeries on the south side of Glasgow now put, uh, put to shame. You know, it was just just tables and tables of amazing pastries and cheese to meat use, as we called them. So fancy cheeses and meats. <laughs> and um, so I start shoving them in my face because we hadn't had breakfast. And I was doing this like weird thing on tour where I would just like just take as much as I could and save it so that we didn't have to buy meals. Yeah. And um, so then I took I was wearing like a, a smock dress and I took it and I just started filling it with stuff for the guys and I was like they're gonna love me they're just gonna be like Jill you're the greatest we love you so much and I'm going down the stairs and the guy the Dutch guy greets me at the bottom of the stairs and he's completely white as a ghost and I was like are you okay and he was like that's Paul Weller's dressing room (laughs) 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 so I may or may not have done a number two also in his private bathroom so there you have it, guys. At, at Port Willow, straight in the socials. <laughs> I'm a classy lassie. You oh, left some pebbles on his beach. Oh, God almighty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Paul, that's a belter. That yeah. is really, that's excellent. Having so. been in a, in a van with you, like, on tour, there are some stories that I would love if we could tell that you've told me. Uh, and I honestly didn't think you were going to tell that one. So that's, de- that's definitely, <laughs> that's seen it. <laughs> Well, there you have it. <laughs> so, you know, it's tough times. We all need a laugh. <laughs> oh, dearie me. We were going to, I mean, I don't actually know how to follow that, but we were going to ask you if you had had any this is it moments coming off those big joyous highs. Have you had any part of your career where you think, right, this is it. This is the, the leap forward that I need. This is going to break me any of like those moments I feel like you get lots of them and Mm. then they kind of my break you positively not emotionally yes yeah yeah. um not not really so much I feel like it's my career I'm doing quotation marks because I just remembered where this is a radio show my career heavily quotationed has been a slow burning thing that has had uh that has ebbed and flowed and had peaks and troughs and that kind of thing um so I've never experienced an aha moment where it's been like, this is, this is it. It's going to happen. But I've had a couple glorious moments, like um, going into BBC and doing a Lauren Laverne session was pretty great. Cause that was when she was doing the afternoon show. And I remember realizing this is, I didn't really know much about six music kind of coming from America and whatever, but I was like, knew enough by Nick and Gregor's faces to realize this was exciting. And then getting in like Grazia magazine that I realized, okay, that's kind of cool. Um, touring with the Pogues on their Christmas tour, things like that. Um, just because it was fun and it was exciting and it was a band from, that I loved and with a, a prose writer who I adored, um, Shane McGowan. So I thought th- these moments were kind of great. Uh, weird ones, like doing an interview with Dermot O'Leary on Radio 2. That was, um, I don't know if you'd call that a high, but it was definitely cool and weird and different. Um, that was when I was had done a single with James Yorkston on his album for Domino Records. So things like that I thought were exciting moments, but I never had a, okay, this is it, because basically I've never had that kind of success, if I'm being dead honest. So. And what about the other way? 
Have you ever thought, this is it, I just, I can't do this anymore? Yes, I actually had a moment where, it was probably the moment when we decided to just put Sparrow on hold. Um, we had done, it was our third album, and we'd gone to London and played a sold-out gig at the Hoxton Bar and Grill, I believe it was. We'd gone to Bristol, there was a decent crowd, Brighton, and I thought, okay, this is okay, but it was a little bit thinner than for the other album. And then we got up to Manchester, which we must have played 20 times. And every time we played, our label would say, next time you play, there'll be more people. But it never happened. And every time we played Manchester, unless we were supporting another band, like, for instance, British Sea Power, a.k.a. Sea Power now, um, or because they had a big following in Manchester, or the Pogues, or... Brian Jones Sound or oh, Idlewild or someone like that. When we were when we were out with a bigger band, obviously there'd be people. But whenever we go out on our own, five, ten people would turn up. Maybe at the be- at the best twenty. Um, and I remember being like, I don't want to go to Manchester. So we had done the the south. We'd already been in Glasgow and Edinburgh where people come out, and that was a good vibe. Done the south. We got to Manchester, and now this was five years into. Our stuff. We'd put out two EPs, three albums, toured constantly, and we knew how to play. We we could yeah. play in our sleep, and we played together well. And three people were at this gig, and I don't even remember the name of the venue. And a guy comes up after, and he was just like, "Oh man, you guys should should play more. You, you've you've got really you got something going for you." And it was nice. He was being nice, but I just realized at that moment that. I was compromising my mental health doing this. So I was like, I'm done. I'm mm. done. And I think it's just because I love music too much that I kept going with it eventually, but I needed a break. My, my, my mental health was a disaster. And I just felt it's not an ego thing even. It's just when you're giving so much of yourself all the time in that kind of way, as you guys know, creatively, you're mining things to be creative. You know, you're like mining parts of your your memories and your uh, emotional, your soul or whatever that is. I don't know what a soul is, but you know, parts of your, your, your psychological and emotional self, your psyche that they're not comfortable places to go to. And then you put, you sing them and you hope you make a connection. And that's always all I've wanted to do. Just make connections and have people say, you know what? I felt something. Or the best thing is when like a young woman sees you play and they say, I want to go and write a song now, you know, like that kind of, music kind of doing having that power and so (laughs) to play Manchester after years and years of slogging and sleeping in the cold floor of our van and um yeah to play to three people and one guy was like probably sitting on the stage with his back to us and then have this one guy be like yeah man you guys you should play you should play more you know it just it does something to you you just feel like what am I doing? I'm just, uh, I'm just filling up space here and, and not in a positive way. This is, this is silly. What, what were we, what were we doing? And all your friends, as you're getting older, your friends are like getting jobs or advancing in their careers or doing this and that and the other and having, I don't know, savings accounts apparently. <laughs> What's that? I know. A right? savings account. Wow. These things. There's, and... there's other types of accounts. <laughs> what? Now you're going to blow my mind. So I just kind of felt like, I had a I had a wobble. It was a big, big sort of like existential wobble. But yeah, carry on because humans are really like good at that. 
If you're enjoying this podcast Patreon. or would like to incentivize us to get better at it, Patreon. head over to our Patreon. 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 100% Patreon. Patreon page. Become a patron of the podcast. Head to patreon.com forward slash SDTMA. That is patreon.com forward slash SDTMA. And what does that stand for, David? Still doing the music, eh? <sighs> wow. Seamless stuff. So, if you can chuck us a few quid a month, that'll really help us to produce and make this podcast. But if you can't afford that, you can listen for free. We are living in a hellish dystopia after all. I, when David asked me to, to be part of this with him and he was kind of chatting through things that he wanted to discuss under this whole, you know, you're still doing the music and people were like, are you going to do that X Factor? Are you doing this? I instantly wanted to discuss touring. I think touring is not really spoken about and it's hard. It's complex, it's hard, it's been switched on in a tight bubble of people, some of which you may know, some of which you don't. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm I'm interested about talking about the touring side of things and like did you enjoy it? Did you I, I find it really I love it, but I find it really difficult. I need to go away and recharge and be on my own and Yes. I can't be on all the time Mm -hmm. and I get really affected by gigs that like like what you just told us there like if I was thank god I'm not a front woman Mm -hmm. I would really really struggle with that going into like the next day I just I just think it's it's a part of the industry that people who aren't doing what we do don't understand that's nice you're just going away and oh my god you play music you're doing wee shows it's yeah what helps with them the whole kind of uh, difficult gigs and being a front person thing is that if you have a really high level of self-loathing already, <laughs> then it, it makes you invulnerable. Okay, noted. Pro tips. Pro, pro tips. Pro, pro tips. Yeah, keep that one in the bag. Um, yeah, I think that's a really it's a really good thing to talk about. I agree with you, and I think in Sparrow there was a, one aspect, and it was in the earlier days of social media. But, you know, things look good. There's pictures of you in, in you know, uh, Uncut Magazine, Enemy, uh, cool blogs and stuff. And people are like, yeah, man, they're a rock band. They're doing really well. And then there's the reality, which yeah. we just spoke of. And the exhaustion of touring and the exhaustion of that kind of touring when you're at a low level, when you don't have guitar techs and monitor engineers and um, you're driving yourself places. Yeah. Um and yeah, it's tiring and exhausting. And when you complain about it to people who don't do it, I remember in those days, some people would be like, oh, I'm so sorry, in a kind of cynical way. And you'd be like, wow, you really, you just don't, you don't get it at all. It's, it's, it's really tough and it can really mess with your head. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there were like those kind of gigs really, really exhausting. And I feel like because we did so much ourselves, and a lot of people didn't realize that there were bands promoting themselves as DIY bands. And we were the most DIY band, but we, we didn't promote ourselves that way. And we didn't get promoted that way. And I think we were seen as like, 
I once saw someone make a flippant comment about us as being a kind of buzz band. And, but actually we were real humans making music we loved and because we loved it. And we sort of got swept up in this current of the way the industry works is, okay, well now you have a manager. Now you have an agent. Now you're going to play these gigs. You're going to support these people. You're going to go and do this and you're going to do that. And you're going to do it again and again and again. And we got swept up in that current. So I think in a way, yeah. And I think it happens to a lot of bands. They don't know how to stop. They don't know how to slow down. They're yeah. not really given that mental health support because it didn't exist. It wasn't considered like important. It was just like, well, this is what you do. Just, just drink, have a drink and you'll feel better. To- yeah, I totally agree. That's it. You've driven for hours on end, slept in a van, arrived somewhere. There's like eight warm beers and a loaf of bread, a treat, a mm-hmm. treat for everyone get on stage, do it, lift all the gear back out, round and round in this cycle, and it just... Yeah, it's tough. It's tough, yeah. We actually had a... F- like, just to lighten the mood slightly, we, we used to play <laughs> this terrible venue in um, Barfly London, and we played it so many times, because it was kind of... I don't know why. I mean, we played lots of venues in London, but that one we must have done five or six times. And I remember one time going in, and we had done the drive. You guys know the drive from Glasgow to London. And Fairly well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got there at 4 o'clock. We'd left at 8 a.m., had one stop in Westmoreland or whatever, and then uh, get there, and the venue, the promoter's nowhere to be seen. The sound engineer's not particularly friendly. Everyone was overworked and exhausted, and we get shown to our um, a dressing room, and <laughs> eventually the promoter shows up and sees us for like one minute and says, oh, I'll get you your writer. We go down to soundcheck and we come back, the writer's there, and it's three scrumpy jacks, three pieces of ham, and three pitas. You got a bit of ham each? <laughs> we got a piece of ham each. You lucky duckies. <laughs> the, the dressing room in Barfly London looks like um, someone has been, you know, murdered there, like, every hour. Yes, it's horrible. Yeah. I remember it was, I was just so, like... It was, yeah. Is it still open? I don't think so. Okay. I think once you have, like, I think once the whole venue looks like a crime scene, they have to close it. Do you know where I did love playing the Lexington? I, I have to say, as much as I usually hated Lon- playing London, there were so many horrible things about it, but I always liked playing the Lexington. I don't know why, but it was a... It's a great venue. It's a great venue. It's a nice part of town. Um, the promoters were nice. It makes a difference. Mm. And they yeah. give you food, you yeah. know? Yeah. And you're just like... Oh, it's not that much to ask for, just like a tiny, like some chips and a burger, you know, and you'd get that and they were nice. Changes your whole demeanor, I yeah. think. Yeah. It's like touring Europe. They they have more funding. They get, they treat artists like they're humans. Real job, like this is a real job and career that we, we were discussing this last yeah, night. Yeah, just last night. Uh-huh. How much we all love playing mm-hmm. around Europe. It's amazing. Europe is great. All the cheese to meet you, so you could never ask for. <laughs> Actually, Nick coined that term, just to be clear, not me, but... <laughs> That's the episode title. <laughs> yeah, it should be, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, just on the way back from our show last night in the van, it was like, uh, it's amazing going to Europe to um, to, to do a, a, a run of shows because every every venue you turn up, especially Germany actually, you turn up and then there's like a fridge full of food and beers and then you kind of sit there waiting for permission almost and then like the pro, like, why have you not opened the fridge? That's all for you. And it's like... <laughs> It's like, quick, back the van up, and then you're loading sandwiches into the 
Well, them. that's what I used to do. Mm. I would like bake sandwiches, and they must have thought, oh, "God, do these children eat?" Like, what? Do, you know, no. I was quite skinny back then too. They probably thought, "God, she's just like starving." What do they do in, in on that island? <laughs> Brexit Island. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, the going away on tour can can be hard as well. Like, I mean, you really need to get on. In, in the respect to like you need to get on with everyone that's sharing your mode of transport and um like well, you've got a test that was one of the first things that <laughs> when we met in what queen's park yeah you told me you opened up the conversation with hi i'm david um i've just got resting bitch face so this is just it <laughs> and um i've got a what is what is the test it's the m6 it's test, the M6 test. <laughs> i mean yeah. i don't think it was this abrupt I did tell you straight off the bat that I've got I've got resting bitch face. So when I'm passively listening to someone, I look raging. Well, that's, just my, that's just my face, though. And I have to tell every new person that I meet that, like, you know, I don't. I'm not just looking at you, going, "You're an arsehole. It's just, it's just my face. Resting bitch. It's just my face. Like, um, oh like, my goodness, David. Yeah. So can I have a sex test? And like, since I started doing like uh, solo st- or broken chanter stuff and like with a band, um. So for people who haven't been on tours up and down the UK, eh, there's a bit when you're heading back to Scotland after doing a bunch of shows in like England and Wales, or even like when you're coming back up the road from coming through Dover back from Europe, and there's a bit on the M6, and it's like a false summit, and you think, we're almost back in Scotland. I'm closer to a washing machine than I have been for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. there's a shower waiting for me. And then there's this big brutalist edifice at Lancaster services it's a big like the tower. future yeah yeah and it looks like a spaceship but like you know a spaceship by a, a, an alien race that are phoning it in <laughs> and um, it's it can really break you because you always think you're further than that and then when you hit that you're like we've got two and a half hours to go in this van and if at that point the people that you're with aren't doing your nothing if at that point those people either know that instinctively know that it's a time for some, you know, fun, some light-hearted yeah, chat, or if they know that it's time to shut it and just pretend you're asleep, yeah. then you know, then you know you've got the good people, you've the right people. Oh, yeah. So it's like I would meet everyone, have like a coffee with them, uh, or just a wee chat, and think if I'd just falsely thought I was closer to home than I was, would you be absolutely wrecking my head in the van? And I do wreck your head in the van. Yeah, but it's too late now. <laughs> oh, I think you guys, for what it's worth, just look peachy. Thanks so much. I've been trying to tell him this for absolutely ages, even on stage. <laughs> what was it you said last what, night? That you, that I take the absolute peachy? piss. No, that we look peachy. <laughs> I take the piss out of you all the time on stage. No, you just, um, you're like, uh, it's like uh, my internal monologue about a person. Just uh, standing there. David, keep it moving. <laughs> Shut up, David. Uh-huh. You're Stop it, Shut David. Up. You're embarrassing yourself. What would your mother think? <laughs> we should really ask Jill a question. We've just spoken about ourselves. I, I'm we fine, are I'm having banter. <laughs> yes, I, I'm enjoying it. It's cool. Rose McConaughey from Much Missed, <clears throat> Indie Poppers, Kid Canaveral asks... What's the big achievement you put on your musical CV or press release? And what is your biggest personal music achievement? Do they differ? This is a good question. Uh, probably a little bit different, yeah. Um, so the, the the biggest one that comes to mind, 
and the one that you can sense impresses people the most is played Glastonbury. So that that's on the music CV. Yeah. Um, I, this is the top festival played. Um, but you know, Glastonbury is actually I. It's kind of like a giant uh, chemical toilet that's punctuated by <laughs> fields full of people off their faces. So you're wanting to go back, is what you're desperate, desperate to go back. Um, I'm gonna hold in a pee for eight hours so I can just go use a chemical toilet at Glastonbury. But that's like my main memory of it. Just that kind of there's lots of chemical toilets. Um, and trudging our gear across muddy, muddy fields by ourselves, um, while people are like trying to like sit on the, um, the bass drum (laughs) so they can like get their bearings. Uh, so I think, so there's that, there's like Glastonbury, which is like, you put that on and there's certain things that sound, I guess they confer something to people like, oh wow, that's a great fest. I mean, it's not that it's a bad festival. I'm sure some people have a great experience there. Um. And then there's my actual achievement, which is probably right now. Right I would now, say, oh, thank you. Me, <laughs> I'm so touched. Yes, right, right <laughs> this very this minute. Very minute. Um, probably, yeah. I think d- making this rock. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of it. I'm. I feel grateful every day that I got to do this and I got to work with Andy and Pete on it. And I feel. Um, yeah, but if you if I was to write that down, as you guys all know, you, you can put all like so much of your love and energy and thoughts and sweat and tears and blood into the album but it's just one album in a sea of many albums so to other people they're just like okay yeah album when's the next one out but yeah that's my greatest that's currently my greatest achievement musical so i love that yeah that's good should be that way Mm -hmm. i think and it's sad that that's not recognized on press releases and CVs and all that nonsense. It is just about the biggest show you've ever done. Capacity of 5,000. It's, yeah. mm. it's just a load of shit, quite honestly. Yeah, or the oh, biggest name you've worked bleak. with. Even if it was like a fleeting passing yeah. I once took a whiff of the hair of Sting <laughs> at, at some <laughs> festival and that would be on it. Like I didn't. It was Graham right, Coxon, okay. but It was Graham Coxon. <laughs> Close. Yeah, yeah, they're practically the same, right? I didn't even blink when you said, you know, that you've sniffed Sting's hair there. Nobody, <laughs> nobody. Would what get was that the name close. of that weed guy, by the way? You know that guy? Um, he was famous for Howard Marks. Yeah, I once. Oh, can we talk about this online? He once left a present on a stage, <laughs> uh, and we were on next. I'll just leave it at that. Yes. What a gent. I know. <laughs> yeah, um, you're listening to Glad Radio. <laughs> you, can, you can cut that out, by the way. Yeah, um, we can bleep certain parts of it. Uh, I think that's that's so great to hear, though, and it's it, it's something that I think more musicians should feel, um, and they'd be probably a lot happier and healthier. In their in their heads, if they were this latest thing that I have done is the the, the pinnacle, because you know yeah you have to put everything into it mm-hmm. and it's great and you should be very proud of it yeah. and that's so wonderful yeah. to you. Thank you. And moving on, discussing people listening to bodies of work. What a segue! I know, right? Mm. Thank you. Um, You're earning your fiver. 
I sure am. <laughs> As someone with a lengthy career, what's your experience of streaming becoming the primary source of consuming music now? Oh, well, in the old days, when streaming was just kind of becoming um, the way forward, I remember sitting in the office of my label at the time and they were talking about it. And the one of the label managers is saying, no, we're not going to put your music on Spotify. Spotify was new at that stage because it, 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 there's no benefit. Like this is what he was saying. He was like, he was like, there's literally no benefit except for to the consumer. There's no benefit to the artist. There's no benefit to the label. There's just no benefit. And I remember we were just like at the time going, but everyone's doing it. Everyone's putting, if we don't put it on, no one's going to listen to us because that's where everyone's listening to music. And they were coming at it from the business side of being like, but it makes no sense. And I remember at the time being a bit angry with them. They ended up putting it on because probably the distributors told them to. But at the time, I remember being a bit like, oh, there's dinosaurs. They just don't get it. But I think turns out there was some val validity to what they were saying that it doesn't make sense. And it only makes sense if you... If we, we do live in a commodified world, we can pretend we don't, but we do. And in a commodified world, your music, even if you didn't want it to be, it does become at some point a commodity, even if it's just so that you can make the next album. So in that kind of sense, it does feel odd that, and I hear a lot of the young people I work with saying, oh yeah, I just stream everything. I wouldn't buy anything. That's stupid. Like they think you're a chump if you buy music. So we've just, as a society, as a consumer society devalued musicians we've done it now and now we're what, how many years into it um and it's a fact and we can argue about it all we want my opinion is that that's the reality of it that we don't um we don't value them as anything more than commodities and even this whole thing of like people having to put more and more themselves on tiktok or do these kind of collaborations with Apple Music or whatever, that that's what they should be doing or get your music synced. Well, even that's hard because everyone's trying to do it. Yeah. Um, so it becomes even, it's like the, for me, it's the most cruel form of, well, capitalism is cruel anyway, but it's the cruelest, most aggressive form of capitalism. And we've, we're all sort of, again, like talking about currents earlier, we're sort of caught in this current of it. And you feel, well, if I don't engage, then I'm invisible. So that part of it's been a little tough. Um, also, I I insist on making music that doesn't really sit in a genre. And a, an artist like me, it's not as easy on streaming because, you know, streaming also has these algorithms that wants to, wants to put you into categories. And if you sort of defy categorization, if you're a genre fluid, as a very clever person once said, uh, if you're genre fluid, then you're effectively... Um, yeah, you're, you're maybe not going to get as much traction as someone who obviously plays this type of music, whether it's, I don't know, off the top of my head, like if you're clearly a country musician or clearly a post-punk musician or, well, all, you know, all these terms are bendable, but, you know, I just think streaming kind of the, the nature of how we stream music, it's pushing us into these, and mood music, don't get me started on mood music. I was um, I was talking to somebody who works in the kind of digital uh, side of things, um, you know, all things digital recently, and they were telling me that they'd sat in a meeting where somebody had sincerely pitched that artists should start doing playlists of their own songs. 
That's so weird. he was like, that's an album. And the guy was like, hmm? It's like, no, like a playlist of songs that they've made. And it was like, that's an album. <laughs> and it just, just things like that. The game's a bogey. It's just, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think I sabotaged uh, my old band somewhat because I refused um, to have our, our record on Spotify because I thought it was theft. But it turns out I was just being, you know, a total cunute raging against the tide. Well, I mean, there's benefit to it. I mean, also, I, I wouldn't, you shouldn't beat yourself up too much because it is also, there's a lot of music on Spotify. And even if you are on it, that doesn't guarantee success. It so. was it was kind of at the advent of when Spotify was becoming the default around 2013, 14. Mm-hmm. And... Um, like we were enjoying our purple period of kind of popularity and mm-hmm. like it really it meant that people weren't magazines couldn't playlist you on their their articles and stuff yeah. like that and it was just a stubbornness and a me just banging my fist in the desk going but it's theft just was not yeah you enough. know it, it's, it can feel sobering but those they, it, the thing i always think about because from i it always comes back to music for me which is why my greatest achievement right now is this album i always just think despite the commodification of everything and the fact that we live in a commerce society uh and a capitalist one is that i just think well really regardless of what i'm doing i'll make music if i have the money to make it on a bigger scale i will if i don't have the money i make it on a smaller scale but i'm always going to write i'm always going to think music and that's the one thing that keeps me going, that keeps me taking over. I won't let the industry destroy my spirit. I can't. I can't let it happen. You know. Well, now that we're actually far enough into this recording, uh, and the polis have probably stopped listening, uh, this is actually a, a podcast about destroying the capitalist hegemony. So, um, <laughs> yes. Uh, next up, uh, Charlotte will describe how to uh, make a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> And you said I would get us cancelled. So I think it's vodka. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> Negroni. No. Um, yeah. So I, I think all, all I was suggesting is that, like, you can beat yourself up, but really that's still there. You've made a thing. It's a document of, of a thing you made, and I presume you're very proud of, and it's very good. And even though you might not have captured a wave, maybe you didn't jump on on your your surfboard or whatever but it's it's in the sea and people will find they can find it and they will find it and i think that's the most important thing you know it's it's there um because that's brave just doing that for me that's the exciting thing because so many people don't even do that or they just don't feel like they can or that they should or that they you know they don't know how and various reasons so to just make a thing it's amazing and you just be proud of that i would say yeah i've got huge respect for anyone who can uh, even if it's not something that's particularly as you would say up my cup of tea <laughs> um uh, there's a lot of respect about people just saying i made this and i'm proud of it yeah exactly you know because somebody out there it's done something good for them i believe you know someone out there will have listened to it and it's gotten them through a breakup or it's gotten them through a, maybe they lost their job or 
just something like maybe that's me being a little bit presumptuous, but 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 it, you know you have to believe that I think. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Jill, what's what's next for you? Well, I'm going to um, start writing again. Oh, I've started writing already some ideas. I'm going to go into the studio with the guys and start trying to flesh them out and maybe record them. And um, the idea of maybe doing another album, that'd be nice. And then some gigs coming up in December that have not been confirmed yet. And also, um, that's um, that's kind of what's going on. So I need to figure out how to how to do it, right? So looking into figuring figuring out how to make, how to make the album, how to um, find the time to write. That's a big issue, time and space. So that'll be good. And in the midst of that, got a few theater projects I've got to complete, and then the other work that spinning the spinning plates, <laughs> as we all know about <laughs> spinning the plates. So. Well, thank you very much for joining us for the first episode. Um, what were we going to call it? Oh, we were going to call it Cheese to Meet You. Cheese to Meet Cheese You. Cheese to Meet You. So thank you for being on yeah, episode one of Stilled in the Music Eye. Cheese to Meet You. first guinea pig. It's an honour to be the first guinea pig. Thank you so much for having me. I can unplug your electrodes now. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. This podcast was recorded for Glad Radio at the Deep End in Glasgow, Scotland, under the watchful eye and guidance of Richard the Raging Bull, and edited by me, David McGregor. Today's episode was written by me, with additional material by Charlotte Printer. All music composed by me and all. This episode was sponsored by the way you tell yourself things are going to be different from now on after a significant period of time spent vomiting. <laughs>